What I thought I would do is look really at the background to the events of 11th of November 1918 and try to give some explanation to something that in many ways is even more mysterious, I think, how, how the war ended is more puzzling and a strange set of events, really, than, uh, than its beginning, which is already complex and difficult and enigmatic enough. So I want to get behind the story of the armistice, and uh, one thing to bear in mind is that it was a surprise and a mystery in many ways to people at the time. We talk about 1914, the war beginning in the first place, because of a so-called short war illusion that governments and the public in July and August 1914, when crucial decisions were taken, were expecting a war that would last perhaps a matter of months, certainly not a war that would last four and a half years. By the time we get to 1918, the fourth year, fifth year of the war, we're looking much more at a long war illusion. The British cabinet, as late as uh, November 1917, is discussing the need to build battleships and battle cruisers that will become available for a war continuing into 1920. Sir Eric Geddes, who had taken over as First Lord of the Admiralty, tells the House of Commons in the autumn of 1917 that the country must prepare itself for, quote, a long war. Yeah, that's in November 1917. So the expectation was that it was going to go on for a very much longer period of time than, in fact, it turned out to do. Now, I want to look, I suppose, or start with a, a flashbulb moment. We, we don't have many pictures of the armistice, but... Uh, here is the celebrated scene. This is often reproduced from the railway carriage, wagon 2419D from the international company of Wagon Lee. It was a sleeper carriage um, built shortly before the war. The armistice, as you probably know, the signature took place um, with the German delegation in one railway carriage and the Allied delegation in the other, drawing up on parallel clearings in the forest of Rotonde in northeastern France, a clearing from which the German heavy artillery had pounded the Allied lines and behind them while the war was going on. So this is the scene then, and it was a Monday morning, the 11th of November 1918. Um, the armistice was signed at 5 a.m. It was raining, the leaves were falling. So it was a mood, moody, atmospheric kind of event. And what the picture shows you are the French, led by Marshal Foch, who I'll have more to say about, and the British, led by Admiral Vimes, who was the first sea lord, so the top official at the Admiralty. So this is an Anglo-French event. The Germans are not in the picture. But interesting, you may ask, where are the Italians? Where are the Americans, more particularly, who also played a major part on the Western Front in the last months of 1918? Well, I'll try to explain a bit about that mystery, about why there are people who are not in this picture, as well as there are people who are. But that's my starting point, then. This is the armistice, the ceasefire agreement for the Western Front, signed um, at 5 a.m. on the 11th of November, taking effect immediately as far as the naval war was concerned, but it would take longer to reach the armies. So the time when the armistice actually took effect was, of course, 11 a.m., the 11th, day of the 11th, 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, up until 11 a.m. So during those six hours, the fighting continued and hundreds more soldiers lost their lives. Now, asking why the war ended when it did, in some ways, is putting the question the wrong way around. The real puzzle, of course, is why the First World War continued for so long as it did, even when it turned out to be something wholly different, if you like, in many ways far, far worse, going beyond the worst nightmares of those who had begun it four and a half years before. And the conventional answer to this is that it became a stalemate, which is, which is true, but I think we need to dig a bit deeper behind this impression of the First World War as being a classic stalemated war. It's actually a stalemate in three distinct and overlapping forms. 
First of all, it's a military stalemate, and this is immediately, I guess, what most people think about, that it's a trench warfare, particularly on the Western Front, though actually less so by 1918. Um, it's a situation where defenders are backed up by railways, by enormous uh, industrial bases in their home countries, by armies millions strong, and so protected by machine guns, barbed wire, field guns, a panoply of weapons, which make it very difficult, if not impossible, for defenders to break through without completely unacceptable cost. This being true not only on the Western Front, but on many of the other fighting fronts. So the first thing, if you like, then, for a variety of reasons of which technology is one, and a major part of it, it is not possible for either side to achieve a decisive military breakthrough. But secondly, governments that organise and maintain this war effort are supported by a high degree of consensus at home, even so less by 1917-1918, but still fundamentally, except in Russia, which I will mention, the consensus in favour of fighting on stays in place. So there is a domestic political stalemate. The war can't be ended by military breakthrough, but nor can it be ended by revolution, at least in the big powers, Britain, France, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Italy, later on the United States. Russia is the exception. And thirdly, it's a diplomatic stalemate. This, in some ways, is the most puzzling thing of all. Why is it not possible for governments and their representatives simply to organise a conference in Switzerland, meet round a table and say, this is stupid. None of us expected this. We need to liquidate this war. And the short answer to that is that the two sides are politically too far apart. And the more they go on with the war, in many ways, the deeper they get into it, the deeper the divisions between them become, and the greater the sense of insecurity and distrust, which had already been growing up, of course, for a decade or more before 1914, but it becomes far, far greater once both sides have suffered enormous casualties. And there is a kind of trap which closes on the European belligerents by 1917, by 1916-17, by the middle years of the war. They have had such heavy casualties that in many ways it becomes much easier to sacrifice the next 50,000 lives and to when you've already sacrificed 50, 100,000, half a million. And on the assumption all the time, the other thing to bear in mind about all of this is that people did not know at the time how long the war was going to go on. So for much of it, until about the last year or so, there's a series of decisions to carry on for six months, a series of incremental decisions to carry on and see, see what would happen. So these are the underlying factors which make for the stalemate, military, domestic, political, and diplomatic. The war cannot be ended by military breakthrough. It cannot be ended by revolution. It cannot be ended by negotiated compromise. So why does it ever end? At the end of 1917, that question is still very much pertinent. And I've already mentioned the British government's assumptions at the end of that year that it was still in for a very long haul. A long haul is made possible, of course, by America coming into the war in April 1917. And I'll say more about the Americans as I go along, because I would say that fundamentally, without American entry, the best that the Allied side could have extracted from this war would have been a compromise, and a compromise that was probably unfavourable. So the fact that the Allies achieve a victory, even if it's a limited victory in 1918, American contribution is vital to that. But the American contribution is very slow to take full effect. And during 1917, America's entry into the war is counteracted by a series of other things. Russian Revolution, um, mutiny in the French army, um, Britain near to bankruptcy. And many of these submarine warfare, devastating Allied supplies of shipping. 
Now, all of these things would have happened anyway. So if you want to run a counterfactual, as some historians do, I think the most plausible scenario, if the Americans had not come into the war, would it have ended with some kind of compromise towards the end of 1917, and one that was deeply unfavorable to the Allied side. The military stalemate, and this is why I've shown you the Passchendaele battlefield, um, probably of October 1917, this, taken this as a Canadian picture, was, of course, the Canadians who captured the village of Passchendaele, but this shows you the nature of the Western Front fighting at the end of 1917. And at that stage, it was still no longer, no, not apparent at all how the Allies were ever going to break beyond that. Battle of Third Battle of Ypres, British Army fighting it in 1917 with much heavier weapons, more sophisticated tactics than previously, but these are matched by the German defensive tactics, and the result is much the same. The British Army ends up by advancing about six miles. So I'm always reminded here of Churchill's comment um, in May 1940, after the Battle of Dunkirk and the retreat from the continent, Churchill saying there to the House of Commons, looking back to the First World War, the question they asked after three years of disaster and disappointment, as he puts it, was how are we going to win? How are we going to win without a totally unacceptable sacrifice that would destroy Britain as a great power? And that question, at the end of 1917, just a year before the armistice, had still not been answered. Now, I need to mention Eastern Europe. Remember, I've said the triple stalemate, military, political, diplomatic. Try and keep that as a thread running through the presentation. In the East, of course, the element in the stalemate that breaks is the political stalemate. November 1917, or October by the old Russian calendar, Lenin, Trotsky, and the Bolsheviks seize power in Petrograd. Here they are in Red Square. I think, I think it's Red Square. Actually, it doesn't look very like Red Square. But anyway, this is a scene with them haranguing the crowds, or Lenin haranguing the crowds and Trotsky looking suspicious, as well he might. You know? But this, this is, I think, a shot from 1918. Now, the point here is that a regime has seized power in a key country um, at the end of 1917, for which the priority is to end the war, really at any cost. To begin with, what they hoped was that the revolution would spread westwards. When it doesn't, then um, they're unable to turn the civil international political war into an interna international civil war between proletariat and bourgeoisie. So they have to settle for plan B, which is a separate peace. The Russians break away from Britain and America and France and sign a separate treaty with the Germans and, its, and Austrians. And it's worth remembering, there it is, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, March 1918. And this is what the territorial transfers look like. Worth remembering this actually when we look at the map of Eastern Europe today. Yeah, but the whole of the orange area here, which had been under Tsarist sovereignty in 1914, Russia loses control of. That doesn't mean it's annexed by Germany and Austria Hungary, but it is turned into central power, into buffer states under the central power's control, including Ukraine, where there is a nominally autonomous government by 1918. That doesn't actually end the hostilities in the East. That's the other thing to say about it. Yeah, um, you see the blue line here. This is as far as the Germans and Austrians advanced by the summer of 1918. So even after the peace, supposed peace, hundreds of thousands of Central Powers troops are kept in the East. Not their best troops, but troops that could well have been used elsewhere. So this is an, one of the reasons for saying that one of the ways, the explanations for why the war ends at the time and in the way it does is the mistakes of the Central Powers, as well as the strengths of the Allies. So there's the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, and remembering my triple stalemate, it's the political element in the stalemate that fails first in the East. 
Once the Bolshevik comes to, government comes to power, much of the Russian army deserts and goes home, and the Russian government therefore cannot put up further military resistance and is obliged to accept the central power's terms. So once you break the political stalemate, then the breach in the military stalemate and the diplomatic stalemate follows. There is an attempt to prevent this from happening, and the attempt is the first thing on the timeline here. The president, American president, here he is, addressing Congress on the 8th of January 1918 and unveiling his 14 points. Georges Clemenceau, the cynical French premier, said that the good Lord had only had 10 points to make, but President Wilson has 14, the 14th of which is the League of Nations, and that gives you an indication that this is meant to be an idealistic peace programme idealistic and relatively moderate. It's meant to stand out in deliberate distinction to the imperialist war aims that the Allied powers have developed between 1914 and 1917, and which the Bolshevik government had just published, a huge propaganda disaster for the Allies, even if the German war aims were in practice just as imperialist as the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk demonstrated. Now, the story of 1918 at one level, one thread running through it, is the president announces the 14 points, these fail to keep the Bolsheviks in the war because they signed the separate peace in March. They are also unacceptable to the Germans in the spring. But at the end of the year, when Germany asks for a ceasefire, it appeals to the American president and asks for a peace based on the American program. So at the beginning of the year, the Germans reject this moderate and idealistic American program. At the end of the year, they accept it. And it becomes the basis on which everybody signs up to the ceasefire there were very conflicting views about what the significance of the 14 points is. So what happens between these two dates yeah, is really a tremendously important series of military events, and very, very dramatic. First of all, there is a series of German and Austrian offensives between March and July. And secondly, there is a series of Allied counter-offensives, which is probably easiest to show by looking at a map. But the, basically, the, the pattern is the Germans and Austrians are on the attack I'll show you the map later on, between March and July. And from July to November, the Allies are counterattacking. So the situation by the autumn of 1917 is the Germans have tried an all-out offensive. That has failed. But they have also lost the ability to stop the Allies advancing defensively. And that's the real novelty by comparison with the middle years of the First World War. Now, I'm going to say a bit about Germany, and Germany is in a way where we have to concentrate this story, just as in the story of 1914. It's the Germans who are making the running, but it is crucial to understand that for the war to end, both sides need to be willing to stop it. Just as for the war to start, both sides needed to be willing to fight rather than back down. In 1918, you need to look at the decisions both on the German side and also on the Allied and American side. The two go together, a kind of symbiotic relationship between them if you're trying to explain what happens. But it is the Germans who take the initiative in 1914 and in 1918. Who do we mean by the Germans is always a key question in looking at the First World War. One of the questions, as the Austrian foreign minister put it in 1914, is who rules in Berlin? And the people surrounding Germany found that difficult to answer. It's a confused system of government. A dominant role is played by 1918 by the military, which does not mean that Germany is a military dictatorship. It's not a totalitarian state like the Third Reich in the Second World War. But these two men here do have a veto power over key decisions on foreign policy. That's Paul von Hindenburg on the left, who is chief of the general staff, and Erich Ludendorff on the right, who is first quartermaster general, who is the dynamic element, really, the, the intelligence and the willpower 
in this combination, though Hindenburg is not to be underestimated. He's not just a cipher. These people have been brought to power to deal with a military emergency in the summer of 1916. They have enormous prior, uh, prestige because they defeated or been thought to have played a major part in defeating a Russian invasion of Germany in 1914. Wilhelm II is afraid of them. They have greater popular prestige than he, than he has. This shows you, uh, if you like, a picture of Wilhelm with his generals in 1918. This is not the characteristic picture of Wilhelm. This is Wilhelm on the left here then, looking older. By 1918, he's losing energy, losing day-to-day um, -day involvement in government, which he'd never been very strong on anyway. Not a details man, a man who's rather remote from governmental processes. But if it comes to a confrontation between the military and the civilians in Berlin, Wilhelm will not back the civilians. Civilians will be forced to resign, as key members of the government had been, rather than Wilhelm accepting and agreeing to Hindenburg and Ludendorff resigning and stepping down. So, in other words, to cut a long story short, for a major foreign policy initiative to happen, such as requesting a ceasefire, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, the OHL, the Army High Command, have to be behind it and have to agree with it. Which means our starting point for this story is really Saturday, 28th of September, 1918. And this is the day on which Erich Ludendorff has a nervous breakdown. Now, there is a personal tragedy lying behind this. Hindenburg, Ludendorff had been undergoing strain since the summer, since the campaign had been going wrong. His, uh, a psychologist had been brought in, Dr. Hochheimer. I always liked this bit. Hochheimer recommended that Ludendorff should have roses in his study, should go for evening walks in the woods. The headquarters was at Spa in eastern Belgium. He should, in the evening after finishing work, he should sing hearty German folk songs with his staff officers. All of which things he did, but none of them really helped very much. And um, he was uh, signs of personality deterioration, and Ludendorff was a complex, difficult personality, moody anyway, taking to the drink, quarrelling with Hindenburg. So the personal story is part of it, but there are, of course, much more fundamental reasons why the decision to seek a ceasefire is taken. And if you might like to think of it as in layers, there's an issue in the Balkans, there's an issue on the Western Front, there's a deeper problem of the condition of the German army, and, of course, the condition of the domestic situation within Germany. So let's look at them in turn. This, is a, this could be from the Crimean War, uh, almost, except for the... Uh, Red Cross marker, probably as an aircraft landing strip. But this is a... Remember, there were British forces fighting in Salonika. They landed in Salonika in northern Greece and garrisoned the area uh, Macedonia, really. If I show you a map, this may make it a bit clearer what we're talking about. The Salonika front lies across this area here, and um, Allied troops had been there since 1915, including British ones. There'd been heavy fighting... Um, the British war artist and poet, Stanley, uh, and poet Stanley Spencer serves in this sphere, but in many ways it's forgotten front um, until 1918. And then on the 15th of September, French and Serbian troops attack here in the area that's now really Kosovo. This is a rather blurred map, but it shows it a bit better. And they advance within um, a couple of weeks. They push the Bulgarians back that far. And the thing that immediately precipitates Ludendorff's nervous breakdown is a decision by the Bulgarian government to sue for a ceasefire. So the track that leads to the end of the war, as the track that led to the beginning of the war, actually begins in the Balkans. Bulgaria is the weakest of the four central powers, but it nonetheless matters. 
It matters because when the Bulgarians sign the ceasefire, they allow the Allies the right to occupy the whole of the country. This means that a wedge is driven between Austria-Hungary and Germany here and Ottoman Turkey here. The central powers potentially will be split apart. Not only that, but the central powers had occupied southern Romania in 1916, including the oil fields here in Ploesti. If the Allies are able to move up from through Bulgaria and to liberate southern Romania, then the central powers will be deprived of their main source of oil, and Ludendorff's advice to the German government is that within two months, much of the German U-boat fleet, many of its tanks, its lorries, will be at a standstill. So Bulgaria matters as it's for its geographical position and for its connection to Balkan mineral resources. Nonetheless, in past events, as in 1916, the, the Germans have been able to move troops from the Western Front down to the Balkans to, to do kind of firefighting. In 1918, they can't do that, or at least they can't do it quickly enough, because there's simultaneously a crisis on the Western Front. So layer one is the Balkans, layer two is the Western Front. This is just to remind you of how the Western Front is much more mobile in 1918 than it had been between 1915 and 1917. In the middle years of the war, the British troops described the Western Front as the sausage machine. Yeah? In other words, it generates hundreds of thousands of casualties but stays stubbornly in place. That's more or less the line that was occupied between 1915 and 1917. In between March and July 1918, the Germans, who, by the way, do not have tanks or have very few, are able to advance twice more than 50 miles towards the Channel ports and towards Paris. So these are the so-called Ludendorff offensives of March to July 1918. And these are the Allied counter-offensives. So beginning from July, this is the dotted line here, from July the 18th, the Allied forces are driving backwards. This is, this is where they are um, at the end of September. And at the end of September, a concerted series of attacks is launched, the Americans starting in the south the British in the middle, the Belgians and French and British in the north, yeah, that's beginning on the 26th of September. So the crisis in the Balkans happens at the same time as the biggest battle ever fought on the Western Front is in progress and the Germans are being driven back. Remember what I said before, the Germans are in a situation where they are still occupying French and Belgian and Russian territory. Their present situation isn't hopeless, but their future situation is. They cannot win the war by an all-out offensive, and nor can they win the war by holding the Allies back. Because between July and November, this shows you the November armistice line, the Allies advance about 100 miles, and the advance, unlike the German one in the spring, the Allied advance is sustained and even accelerating as the war approaches its conclusion. It's not dramatic by World War II standards, but by World War I standards it is. That gives you some of the key benchmark dates in the series of Allied att attacks between the, 5th, between the 18th of July, which is when it starts, and the armistice on the 11th of November. This shows you the Battle of Amiens, which was, uh, there was a substantial commemoration for this on the 8th of August of this year. Rather romanticised picture from the Australian War Memorial, but it shows you Australian infantry moving forward with their artillery behind tanks, and I'll come back to tanks in a moment. This shows you Allied troops after breaking the Hindenburg Line, which was done by uh, troops from Stoke-on-Trent, actually, from the North Midland Division, on the 29th of September. The strongest German prepared defensive position is smashed through by British troops. If they can take that, they can break through any German position. Now, what's the reason for this shift in the military balance in the Allies' favour? 
partly technology. This shows you a Mark IV British tank. There are a number of things to say about it. Of course, it protects you if you're an infantryman walking behind it towards machine gun posts. It's reassuring. It saves infantry lives. The Allies have hundreds of them. The Germans only have a few dozen. Most, many of the German tanks are actually captured from the Allies and have iron crosses painted on them. Uh, but this moves at walking pace, moves at about two and a half miles an hour. It is a terrible thing for the crew inside to try to steer. It is a sitting target for the German artillery. On the first day of the Battle of Amiens, 8th of August, more than 400 British tanks go into action. By the third day, less than a quarter of them are still operational, very vulnerable to mechanical breakdown, very vulnerable to enemy artillery fire. It's a useful supplement. It's not a war-winning weapon. This is much more important, heavy artillery, by which we mean guns of six-inch calibre or more. This is a British um, heavy, heavy gun in action. I think the picture is from 1918. By 1918, there were far more of these. The British and French and, and even the Americans have very much larger numbers of heavy artillery than previously. They have huge numbers of shells. Before the British break through the Hindenburg line, they fire 750,000 shells in 24 hours against the German defences. And they have skilled crews who are able to operate these things and to fire them accurately, unlike before the Battle of the Somme. Also, unlike before the Battle of the Somme, what they're firing is not just high explosive, but also gas. I've shown you this extraordinary picture of German troops and dogs and gas masks just to remind you that the war on the Western Front by 1918 is a chemical war on a massive scale. Nothing like this to be seen again until the 1980s in the Iran-Iraq conflict. And both sides firing shells, phosgene, which is much more lethal than they'd used at the beginning of the war in 1915, and mainly delivered in the form of artillery shells and very effective in silencing enemy artillery if you could identify where the artillery was, for which you need air superiority. Sopwith Camel, the most famous British fighter of the war, aircraft don't do much ground attack, though they do more by 1918 than previously. But what they are vital for is aerial reconnaissance and taking tens of thousands of pictures of enemy trenches and disclosing where the enemy gun positions are so that the Allied guns can open fire without ranging shots, so that this is a key thing which enables both sides to regain surprise. This is one of the reasons why the war becomes more mobile. Another reason is logistics, which is often underestimated in the story of 1918. Why is the Western Front where it is? The German, it's the Germans, of course, designed the Western Front when they dug in in 1914, and they did so with a trunk railway shown in green here lying behind them. The Allies also have a trunk railway system running down from the Channel ports to Paris and then out to eastern France and Lorraine. So the Western Front battles take place between two massive railway thoroughfares. By 1918, the Allies are using lorries as well as railways on a very intensive scale. The Germans can't. They lack, gun, they lack enough oil, they lack enough petrol, um, they have a much smaller lorry fleet, they are much more dependent on their railway system. And on the 28th of September, the day of the armistice appeal, the German railway system here seizes up. They are being attacked at so many points simultaneously that they're unable to move the, railway, the reinforcements quickly enough along the railway system behind the lines. That's a deliberate strategy, and the strategist who saw the importance of railways is the Allied commander-in-chief on the Western Front, the French Marshal Ferdinand Foch, who I will say more about in a moment. So underlying factors then, the, the Allied triumph is partly technological, partly strategic. Behind it lies, of course, tremendous, by 1918, tremendous industrial power, primarily in Britain and in France. Here's a shell pr production, of course, and there are many pictures of the 
munitions effort, those 750,000 shells that were fired at the Hindenburg line were replaced quite quickly. British Army is not short of shells, nor is the French. One of the reasons for this production miracle is that Britain and France particularly are more successful than the Germans in incorporating very large numbers of women, probably about 2 million in the British case, in the munitions workforce. This means that more men can be left at the front, whereas the German army is releasing hundreds of thousands of men from its army in 1917-18 to go and serve in the munitions factories. German army, for that reason, doesn't run out of shells in 1918. It runs out of men. Another reason for the munitions miracle and the back behind the scenes, the underlying reasons for the Allied triumph, of course, is the war at sea, which is often neglected. Um, but this shows you a, it's a, paint, it's a war painting of a British convoy in the North Sea in 1918, by which stage you can see the ships zigzagging, as is normal, to protect themselves against U-boat attack. They, they have a destroyer escort, and they also, have, in this case, have actually airships overflying them. This combination of things makes convoys virtually invulnerable to German submarine attack, and shipping losses in convoy are about 1%. I mean, far, far higher before convoy was introduced. That's not the only reason for the Allied victory at sea, but it's a crucial reason. And control of the seas means, of course, that supplies can be funneled across from North America, and so can troops. Here we have a rare picture of an American troop convoy coming into Brest in Western France in 1918. And these are the people they were bringing. Now, I said that the American war effort is slow. Yeah? The, the doughboys, as they were called at the time, the American infantry was slow to arrive. March of 1918, there are about a quarter of a million of them in France. But by November 1918, there are two million. They're coming across the Atlantic at the rate of 250,000 a month in the summer of 1918. And not a single outgoing troop ship, American troop ship, is sunk. So there's a tremendous expansion in Allied numbers at the same time as the German army is enormously diminishing in numbers. And I want to stress, before I come to the Germans, of course, don't forget the French. Though note the contrast, if you like, between the appearance of these American troops. You know? Wearing British steel helmets, of course, and by the way, most of their equipment came from France. Their machine guns, their, their um, aircraft, their artillery came from France. Um, but here are the French poilus, um, often written out of the picture after the mutinies of 1917, but the French army is still very much there and still playing a major part in the fighting. So one thing I want to stress, actually, is that this victory that the Allies win on the Western Front, and it, it is a victory, is a victory to which the British and the Americans and the French all make indispensable contributions and therefore all have a claim to having key influence on the terms on which the war comes to an end. That's very important to remember. Now, the corollary of this is the German army disintegrates. It's outnumbered. It loses about a million men in the Ludendorff offences, a million casualties between March and July, almost another million between July and October. It cannot replenish those losses. And from August of 1918, very large numbers of German troops are beginning to surrender. Here they are surrendering at the Battle of Amiens. Here's a shot, I think, taken in the last weeks of the war. And here is a celebrated chart put together in Neil Ferguson's provocative book, um, but important book, called The Pity of War, which shows the numbers of Germans surrendering each month to the British on the Western Front. And you can see how in 1917-18 the numbers are low, but from August 1918 onwards they're very high. The German army is not just outnumbered and outclassed in equipment, its morale is going. And Hindenburg and Ludendorff know that, and this is another key reason why they feel it's necessary to bring the war to an end. Yeah? As Ludendorff puts it, the troops can no longer be relied on. 
If the consequence of defeat is revolutionary unrest within Germany, the troops may no longer be able to be dependent on for repression. You need to keep the army intact for domestic political reasons. Now, this leads us into the domestic political route, and I said that there are four layers to the German decision to seek an armistice. First of all, the Balkans. Secondly, the Western Front. Thirdly, the German army is disintegrating. Fourthly, the conditions at home. Now, it's not true that Germany faces a revolutionary situation in November 1918, though a revolution does, in fact, break out after the approach is made for an armistice. And one thing I do want to stress, it's that way round. It is not, as Hitler and the Nazis later alleged, a stab in the back um, to treason on the home front that causes the defeat. The revolution does happen at home, but the revolution happens after it has become quite clear that Germany has lost the war because it has appealed for a ceasefire, and the high command have taken the initiative in asking for a ceasefire. So why do the high command do this? You know, the situation at home is, yes, food is short, but Germany has faced worse food crises earlier in the war, and particularly in the winter of 1916-17. There's not an imminent danger of revolution, though the left and the progressive forces in Germany are becoming more active. What Hindenburg and Ludendorff intend is a kind of damage limitation strategy to get out of the war before it becomes a complete and utter disaster and the German army is turned into what Ludendorff fears will be a militia, a militsarmee. So the plan is put together by the foreign minister, Admiral von Hintze, who you can see on the right here, an essential part of the plan is to remove the existing Chancellor, um, von Hartling, who you can see on the left, and replace him by a Liberal, Max of Baden, who will head a government that represents the Socialists, the Catholics and the Progressives and the majority parties of the centre and the left in the Reichstag. Part of the intention behind this is to saddle the left with responsibility for the defeat. As Ludendorff puts it, the Socialists will now sup the broth that they have cooked up for us. But it is also meant to appeal to the American president. If you carry through a kind of modest regime change within Germany, what Hintze calls a revolution from above, you will head off the danger of revolution from below if you begin to democratize the government. This is important because another part of the strategy is to appeal to the American president, Woodrow Wilson. When the Germans ask for a ceasefire, they send a message via Switzerland, not to the Allies in general, but to the American president asking for him to arrange a ceasefire and to arrange beyond that a peace based on the 14 points and Wilson's subsequent speeches. So the Germans see, in other words, the Americans as the weak link in the enemy chain. They can do a deal with Washington, then they can get a ceasefire on favourable terms and perhaps even a breathing space after which they'll renew hostilities again. That's the initial German thinking. What happens from then on, of course, is that the German plan goes wrong now, I've talked a lot about the German side because the Germans do take the initiative, and if the Germans hadn't taken the initiative, the war would not have ended when it did. But it is also vital that the British and Americans and Italians and French grant an armistice, and in a way, this is the real puzzle. Why do they do this at a point when at last, after months and years of terrible dis disappointment and casualties, the war is at last turning in their favour? Well, the key answer to that is you have to go behind the military situation to the politics again, and to the fact that the, German, the Americans and the European allies distrust each other almost as much as they distrust the Germans. In the first instance, Woodrow Wilson, of course, is the person, the American president, is the person who the Germans approach. Wilson had always harboured the desire that America should have a key role at the peace conference table. That's one of the reasons why he'd taken America into the war in April 1917. They're not the only one. 
That's a key factor for him. And he saw America's role as being a kind of arbiter that can distance itself from the British and French as well as from the Germans. He distrusts all of these European countries as imperialists. All of them were responsible for what he viewed as an evil balance of power, arms race, military system that had produced the war in the first place. He wants to go beyond all of that. So he's attractive to him when the Germans approach him. And uh, as long as the terms are right, he's actually surprisingly willing to end the war in November of 1918. Part of the reason for this is money. William McAdoo, who is the American Treasury Secretary and Wilson's son-in-law, has warned Wilson that even for the United States, if the war carries on for much longer, it will become prohibitively expensive. Congress is not raising taxes enough. Doesn't this sound familiar? Therefore, the government is having to borrow and the, the war is costing four or five times as much per month as what had originally been expected, and there's now a huge American army in France which has to be paid for in French francs and indeed in pounds sterling because for the ones who are in the UK. So it's a drain on the American balance of payments. So finance is a factor, and this is discussed in the American deliberations, but more important is politics. Uh, Wilson is worried about the extreme xenophobia and patriotism in the United States which is moving towards nationalist war enthusiasm as the British and French are becoming war-weary. Wilson tells his advisor, Colonel House, that he'd not realised how war-mad our people have become. If the war goes on into 1919, he fears that his Republican opponents will gain control of Congress in the November midterm elections. Yeah? No? Yes? Does this sort of all sound familiar, November? Yeah? This is a midterm election year, and the Republicans did, in fact, get control, of course, of Congress in November 1918. That, he, Wilson rightly fears, will undermine his ability to broker a moderate peace abroad. Still more if Germany is so badly beaten that Britain and France are no longer dependent on American help. So all of these factors, if you like, point, in Wilson's view, in favour of settling the war now rather than going on for much longer if the terms are right and if everybody is willing to accept his peace programme, the 14 points. So, this, so what happens is that Wilson does public negotiation with the Germans while the war is still going on. Between the German armistice appeal and the actual signing of the ceasefire, there's about another half a million casualties. So the fighting is going on uh, at full pace during October and November of 1918. So the problem for the European allies is whether they're going to sign up to a peace based on the 14 points, given that it becomes clear that Wilson and the Germans both are. They've never been consulted about this program. And there's a lot of behind the scenes, a lot of um, muttering, as you can well imagine, in the British cabinet and the French, among the French and Italian leaders about the 14 points, because the 14 points are much more moderate, if you like, than the scale of ambitions that the European allies have. Italy's often neglected. There's the Italian prime minister, Vittorio Orlando. While the allies are attacking in the Western Front, Italy is attacking in the Alps. This is the Battle of Vittorio Veneto when they essentially destroy the Austro-Hungarian army and 400,000 Habsburg troops so surrender. So it's not just in France where the Allies are gaining decisive victories, it's also in Italy and indeed in the Middle East. Um, but the Italian government, I think, would have preferred to carry on into 1919, but it won't do it if the British and French decide to stop the war now, and the British and French do. Georges Clemenceau, French Prime Minister here since November 1917, the Tiger, as he's known in France, the key thing for the French is that the, cease, the military terms of the ceasefire give them control of the territories that they want. The armistice emerges from a deal. The deal on the political side is the Allies accept the American 14 points as the political basis of the programme, with various reservations, but basically they accept 12 and a half of the 14 points. 
But the military and technical terms are decided by the Allies, and Wilson deliberately leaves that to them. So the British Admiralty decides the naval terms. Germany will give up all its U-boats and hand over control of its most modern battleships. The French Marshal Foch, who, whose picture I showed you earlier on, in conjunction with Prem Premier Clemenceau, decides the land terms of the armistice, which is that the Germans have to pull back very quickly to the River Rhine. So the whole of this area here comes under Allied occupation. Alsace-Lorraine, which of course the French provinces lost in 1870, come under French occupation. The Allies gain bridgeheads east of the river. The Germans also have to pull back out of Russia and out of Belgium. Belgium is a key concern for the British. The Rhineland and eastern France is a key concern for the French. Russia is a key concern for the Allies as a whole. The Germans have to pull back so fast that they have to leave behind much of their heavy equipment. And in fact, the German army is no longer, under the terms of the armistice, in a position to renew hostilities. Yeah, so the political terms of the armistice point in one direction, a moderate direction, but the military and technical and naval terms point in a different direction. There is something here to satisfy the European allies as well as the Americans. Especially from the viewpoint of the European allies, it's right to stop the war now, because if it goes on into 1919, the Americans will dominate it. This is, Marshall, this is uh, General Smuts, who is South African defence minister in the British cabinet, who says in the British cabinet that if the war goes on into 1917, as he puts it, the Americans will dictate to the world. By 1919, the Americans may have four million troops in France. They will dwarf the British and French armies. So for different reasons, Wilson, from one perspective, the British and French and the other, come to the view that actually politically it makes sense to stop the war now. They have conflicting expectations. How this will all pan out, of course, will depend on what happens at the peace conference in 1919. Now, the final question before I stop is why the Germans end up by accepting a much tougher set of terms than they'd initially expected. Remember Hindenburg and Ludendorff had started the ball rolling in late September, early October, thinking they could extricate Germany from the war on pretty favourable and moderate terms by going to Woodrow Wilson. What they are actually presented with on the 4th of November is a much tougher set of conditions, which nonetheless they basically accept. And this is because Germany's bargaining position collapses early November. And this is where the German Revolution does become important, though it's not the only thing that comes into play. Ludendorff himself is sacked. Um, it's rather cunningly done, actually, by Wilhelm. Wilhelm II asserts himself and sacks Ludendorff, but orders Hindenburg <coughs> to stay. Hindenburg, as a good Prussian general, accepts the order. They walk out. After they leave the room, Ludendorff and Hindenburg never speak to each other again. So the link between the two is broken. Wilhelm Gröner is brought in as Ludendorff's replacement. As you can see, just looking at the pictures, this is a different kind of man. This is a realist. He knows about logistics. He knows that the German army is, is near the point of collapse for lack of supply. And his advice very soon to the German government is that it must make peace, make, stop the war at all costs as soon as possible on any terms available. So the military veto of foreign policy is lifted. Secondly, the collapse of Germany's allies. I could show you many pictures, but the key thing here is the breakup of Austria-Hungary, Germany's main ally in the war. Here's the revolution in Prague, but in late October, early November, there are revolutions um, also in, uh, in the South Slav lands, in Poland. Um, the Romanians break away. The Italians are occupied by Italy. All of the subject nationalities of the Austrian and Hungarian halves of the empire break away leaving Austria and Hungary with under separate governments. So Austria-Hungary essentially disintegrates. Also, at the end of October, Ottoman Turkey, the remaining central power, also signs a ceasefire. 
And in many ways, that's a direct consequence of the Bulgarian ceasefire, which makes it possible for the Allies to attack Istanbul through the Balkans. So if Germany fights on now, it will fight alone. And it's at this point that the German Revolution comes into play. Here's the scene on the 9th of November in front of the Reichstag. This is the day when Wilhelm II flees into exile in, in the Netherlands. And a new provisional government of moderate socialists is formed to govern Germany, which soon carries throughout the reforms that establish what becomes the Weimar Republic in the 1920s and 30s. And the revolution, I can perhaps talk more in questions about the exact origins of the revolution, but it is triggered by the German navy planning a suicidal action, naval action against London and the Thames estuary. The sailors mutiny rather than go along with that, as well they might do. Um, when they come ashore, they join forces with arms, with munitions workers in Kiel, set up a Soviet, and the Red Revolution spreads across northern Germany, though this is a moderate revolution and a largely bloodless revolution. It's not like the revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, more like the earlier Russian Revolution when Tsar Nicholas II had been overthrown. Anyway, the combination of all of this, then, is that the German government has to sign the ceasefire. Now, to finish some snapshots. Brainerd is in Minnesota. This is the viewpoint from the heartland of America. I always put, like to put newspapers up just to remind you that you know, this is not stuff that historians make up. This really happened. People were reading about this on their breakfast tables in Minnesota and in London and in New York and in Berlin and in Paris. Armistice signed, Germany surrenders, Kaiser Bill flees to Holland. President Wilson says America gains all she fought for, perhaps. Almost from the beginning, there were doubts on the Allied side about whether the armistice had not been premature. The person who most eloquently expresses this during the armistice negotiations is the American commander-in-chief, John Pershing, who remembered how the American Civil War had ended in 1865 and the influence of the American Civil War on the conduct of the First World War effort is very important. Woodrow Wilson himself remembered the um, General Sherman's march into Georgia in 1864 and the destruction of southern, the southern states. But Pershing, who was also from the South and actually also a Republican, um, writes a memorandum um, in late October where he argues that victors all, the lesson of history is that victors always underestimate the extent of their triumph. Um, and Pershing was not persuaded that the Allies should, his, his suspicion was the Allies should have gone further, demonstrated a more complete success, moved deeper into Germany, or at least insisted on much harsher terms. Quite soon after the armistice, when the Allies realized that the stent of the German Revolution, many political leaders, such as Lord Milner in this country, agree with him. But that was not the view taken by the Allies when they actually took the decision. Much more influential was Foch, who I show again here, who argues that a war, as he puts it, a war, you fight a war for its results. When it's given you the political advantage you need, then it's time to stop. Carrying on into March 1919, spring 1919, he said, yes, we can win, we will defeat the Germans, but it will mean another 50,000 French lives being lost for political purposes that are, ex that are extremely obscure and nebulous. And that's the Foch view, which is largely, actually, and perhaps surprisingly echoed by Sir Douglas Haig, British commander-in-chief, who was also pessimistic about the prospects of a quick and easy victory over the Germans, thought they still had considerable fighting power. So essentially, the French and British take the view that if the terms are right, and the armistice does seem to be offer them the right terms and offer them enough, then it's time to bring the war to an end. And once they no longer see a political purpose in continuing, they all start to talk about casualties. It's interesting. I've just quoted Foch. Ludendorff says how in the war he'd lost two stepsons who he dearly loved. 
Once they no longer see a political purpose in continuing, then at last they think about the human cost, which had been and remained enormous. Now, basically, I think that Foch was right in that argument. There is enough in the armistice to make Germany helpless and to enable the Allies to impose the peace treaty on Germany in June 1919. That was a harsh peace treaty. But the one thing that can be said in its favour is that if the treaty had been kept enforced, it would have been impossible for Germany to start another major war in Europe. Just look at the disarmament clauses, yeah? Reducing the German army to 100,000 men, no air force, no poison gas, no tanks, no submarines, no general staff. The problem with the Treaty of Versailles and the way in which the war ended causes that it looks as if it's a kind of fake, it's kind of bogus. And this encourages German nationalists, among them the Nazis, they're not only the Nazis, to propagate the myth that the German army had not really been defeated. That in fact the heroes at the front had been stabbed in the back by Jews and by communists at home. This is the origin of the stabbed in the back legend, the Dolkstoss legenda, which is highlighted in this German picture of 1924. So I leave you with a picture of London on Armistice Day 1919. This is Whitehall on the 11th of November 1919, an enormous and hushed crowd. The British government wasn't sure how to commemorate the, the first anniversary of the armistice, but there was a British government decision that there would be a two-minute silence observed throughout the country, and the British government, the leaders, are stunned by the extent of the popular response. And what quickly emerges in the early 1920s is a complex of rituals which are still with us today. On the 11th of November 1920, the burial of the unknown warrior, the unveiling of the cenotaph. On November the 11th, 1921, the beginning by the British Legion, the sale of poppies. But always at the heart of that was a silence. I'll stop there.